You are now listening to the March 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. John Backus from the program Nearer My God to Thee. Have you ever put your entire effort into trying to accomplish something on your own, but for some reason it didn't turn out so well? Then you blamed yourself for the situation and became anxious. However, as time passed and you reflected on the past, did you ever realize that it was good that what you tried to accomplish didn't work out? Often, in our lives, there are hardships we cannot understand. We tried to do something on our own, and later, we realized that God was stopping us. People who have experienced this many times all say something in common. They say, in God's time. In God's time is a way of saying, not at our desired time, but in God's appointed time, His plan will be fulfilled. How about you? Have you ever experienced God's timing? There is a song we're familiar with. Let's first listen to the song. Here's the first verse. In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time. It's a confession that everything works for the good in the Lord's time and not mine. This confession was made into a song by a woman named Diane Ball in 1975. How did she end up composing this hymn? We'll find out through a drama. Diane Ball served as a leader at a Christian assembly center called Fountain of Living Water in California. In 1975, she made plans to go on a road trip with her family during summer vacation. They hadn't gone on a trip for a while, so Diane meticulously planned the entire itinerary from start to finish. A women's gathering in a small city called Calceville invited Diane to be a guest speaker. This place happened to be on the way. Preaching at this place was also part of Diane's meticulous travel plan. According to her schedule, she would have to leave at 10 a.m. on the day of the trip 
to arrive at Castleville on time to preach. All the preparations were made, and it was finally the morning of the trip. Diane, I have to go to the office for a moment. I'll return before departure time, so be ready. Yes, please don't be late. We have to leave at 10 o'clock to be on time for the lecture. Yes, I will hurry and return. Her husband said he'll go quickly to the office, but his work took longer than expected. It was past the departure time of 10 o'clock, but his work wasn't done. Diane began to feel impatient while she was waiting for her husband. After a while, it was 11 o'clock, which was an hour after the scheduled departure time. What's happening? I told him we have to leave at 10 o'clock. <sighs> I'm so upset. Diane, I'm so sorry. Work took longer than I thought. It's something I had to take care of. I'm sorry. Let's hurry and leave. How can you come this late? I'm so sorry. I've done wrong. First, let's go. You can scold me later in the car. They hastily left for the trip. Diane kept thinking of the people who were anxiously waiting for the lecturer to come and became angry. She kept her anger to herself and began praying to God. Lord, please give me peace in my heart. When Diane calmed down, she opened her Bible and began reading. She read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Hmm, there is a time for everything. The Lord wants me to realize that there is a proper time and fixed term for everything that happens in the world. Diane meditated on Ecclesiastes chapter 3 about the Lord's time. When she read Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, she began to hear a lovely melody as if the choir in heaven was singing. The scripture from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 swept away her anxious feeling and she began to feel peace. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now I see. Lord, I cannot dare fathom your work, and yet I was anxious as I tried to do everything as I wanted at the time that was right for me. I desire to leave everything in your care, 
and control for you are sovereign. While riding in the car, Diane wrote lyrics and a melody as she meditated on her meticulous plans and timeline and the Lord's time. When she arrived in Cassaville, the song In His Time was completed. Diane felt anxious when she didn't leave at the scheduled time. As she was riding in the car, she meditated on Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and deeply realized that God is sovereign over all things. She turned her meditation into a song. When she arrived in Calcaville, something surprising happened. Diane couldn't constrain her apologies for arriving an hour late. However, the organizers said something urgent came up and they had to delay the meeting time by an hour. They asked how Diane knew about this and arrived exactly on time. During the lecture, Diane shared what she experienced that morning. She encouraged them to not follow our imperfect timing, but to trust and follow God's timing. Waiting for God's time is definitely different from being lazy. Not doing anything while waiting for an apple to fall from the apple tree is not considered waiting for God's time. Waiting for God's time means we do our best in everything that has been entrusted to us, and we realize and are certain that God is the one who makes everything happen, not us, and it happens in His perfectly determined time. I hope that we will have the faith to wait for God's time. I'll see you next time from Nearer My God to Thee.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is, What is with If I'd Known Sooner? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. So church, it's my honor to take us to the Word of God today. We'll be in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38 through verse 42. So church, hear the Word of God this morning. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Amen. Again, church, I present to you the word of God this morning. So in our passage today, we are brought into a rather interesting situation surrounding two sisters, Mary and Martha, who have the immense privilege of welcoming Jesus into their own home. Let me ask you a question. What would you give to have Jesus as a guest in your home for just one hour? I mean, think about what you would do just to have that privilege. These women have that privilege. Now, as all of you know, siblings can sometimes be remarkably alike. How many of you have siblings? Yes. Now, it's amazing how you can have a brother and a sister or two brothers, whatever, and you can go, I'm a lot like this one and nothing like that one. Isn't it crazy how it all works out? For those of you that have had kids, you've seen your siblings, and in some ways, the kids you have are remarkably alike, but in other ways, they are remarkably different. They're different in the th decisions they make and the choices they make. And in our passage today, that's what we see unfolding. We see two sisters who I'm sure had a lot in common, but we see two sisters today with radically different concerns. One sister, Martha, is worried and concerned about being a good host and taking care of her guests. The other sister, Mary, is concerned with listening intently to Jesus, sitting at his feet, savoring every word coming out of his mouth. And as in the case of most siblings, tensions begin to flare. Specifically, Martha is frustrated with her sister. Her sister isn't doing her chores, right? Her sister isn't doing her chores. And think about all the times that you and you or, and I, you know, you, you, growing up, you went to your parents and said, so-and-so isn't doing their chores. We're, we've all done this. We've all been here. If you've had kids, you know that you've had your kids come to you and say, mom, dad, so-and-so isn't doing what you told them to do. We've all been there. That's what's happening. Mary is neglecting, so it seems, her chores. Martha's so upset, she approaches the guest of honor, Jesus, and asks him to set Mary straight. It's what we do when we go to our parents. Hey, set so-and-so straight. But it's what happens next that proves to be one of those lessons that every follower of Christ is far better off learning sooner rather than later. And what happens next is simply this. Jesus not only rebukes Martha for being worried and concerned about all the wrong things, but he commends Mary for having chosen the better portion. And folks, therein lies the lesson that all of us need to learn. And it is this. As believers, if we are not incredibly careful, we can go through life worried and concerned about all the wrong things while completely missing what truly matters. And when I tell you that this message is a burden on my heart, because this is a burden on my heart, and I'm going to say more on this in a little bit later, we live in the world of great distractions. 
And I do not want to get to the end of my life looking back going, you know what? I spent my life worried and concerned about all the wrong things. It's just so easy. It's such an easy trap to fall into, but I don't want to be, I don't want that to be true of me. I don't want it to be true of the church and this generation. I want to be a voice in this generation with you reminding everybody, let's stay focused on the main thing. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's keep our eyes where they should be. Let's stay focused and determined. Amen? You guys with me? Nobody's listening to me. You're like, ah, nah. just kidding, just kidding. Okay, listen, it's already bad enough that I probably spend too much time worried about things that'll never come to pass. The tragedy is only compounded by the fact that I'm probably worried about the wrong things most of the time on top of that. Incredible, just incredible. So let's start with Martha. Martha, bless her heart. She had the privilege of a lifetime, literally right before her. What was it? She had the living one sitting in her living room. She had the son of God sitting on her sofa. What would you give for that opportunity? But here's the kicker. At that moment, Martha makes a mistake that is so incredibly easy to make. And it is a mistake that I have made a million times in my life and probably a hundred times this week. And here it is. Martha made the mistake of letting lesser priorities crowd out kingdom priorities. That's it. She made the mistake of letting lesser priorities crowd out kingdom priorities. To put it another way, she let the urgent override the eternal. And folks, that is so easy to do. It is so easy to do. And if it's a lesson that you aren't familiar with, it's one you need to become familiar with. And if you've forgotten it, today's the day to renew it. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a lesson you want to learn early and hold on to dearly. You want to know why? Because life is way too short. And the opportunities are much too precious for those of us who are believers to spend our days worried and concerned about the wrong things. It is. Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The Bible says we are the grass of the field that's here today, gone tomorrow. We are but a vapor. We're here and we're gone. Life is so short. The opportunity is so precious that when I have a kingdom opportunity before me, Lord, may I not miss it. May I not miss it and may I have the courage to do something when I see it. Listen, as believers, we are living in a fallen world where the people of this world are constantly worried and concerned about all the wrong things. If those of us who are believers are acting no different for the world, there is no hope for this world. Do you understand that? Somebody has got to be concerned about the right things. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not coming from Washington. It's not coming from the politicians. If your hope is there, and that is my concern, I think the church, many in the church are looking to Washington, hoping that if we get the right politician or people in there, that somehow everything will get better. Folks, where we should be looking is in the mirror. That's where we should be looking. The people who are going to turn this country around, who have the right focus, are in the mirror. They're not necessarily in Washington. That's the truth. What is going to change this world folks, are not better laws, not better programs, not better foreign policy, not a better economy per se. All of those things might be great, but they're lesser priorities. What is going to change this world are people who are focused on what truly matter. And that applies to your families, your places of work, your neighborhood, whatever. How are you going to impact your sphere of influence while your feet are in this generation? While you are still alive, folks, it's going to come down to your focus. Are you concerned about what's what God is concerned about and what the scriptures say that we should be concerned about, or are we like everyone else running around worried about the temporal things of this world? Now, this brings up a very important point that we have to be crystal clear on. So get this. This is so important. The lesser things that we are often worried and concerned about aren't necessarily bad things. 
The lesser things that we are worried and concerned about are not necessarily bad things. And this is perfectly displayed in our passage today. Martha was concerned with being a good hostess and taking care of the guests that were in her home. And this isn't a bad thing at all. As a matter of fact, hospitality is a biblical virtue we should all seek to strive to have. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As believers, we can make a huge impact for the kingdom of God, not only amongst believers, but amongst non-believers by being hospitable. And by the way, for those of you that have that gift of hospitality, I love it. Have you ever been to the house of somebody that has the gift of hospitality? You know it. Because the minute you walk in, what happens? You feel like a king or a queen, right? Because they're just showering you. You're like, oh my goodness, it's incredible. Who are you? And what is this gift? It's amazing. I want to come to your house every day, right? Can I live here? How many of you know somebody that has that gift? Maybe it was a mom or an aunt. Or, yeah, it's such a good gift. It is such a good gift. But there's a trap that Martha fell into. And here was the trap that she fell into. For better or worse, here it was. She let lesser good things crowd out better eternal things. She let lesser good things crowd out better eternal things. And when lesser good things crowd out better eternal things, that's when it becomes a really bad thing. Good things can crowd out better things. Good things can crowd out eternal things. It can happen. And it can happen like that. You can be having a great day, you can be plugged in, you can be focused on what you should be, but before you know it, an opportunity presents itself, and before you know it, you're not Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, you're Martha serving in the kitchen. And serving in the kitchen isn't a bad thing, it's a wonderful gift, it's great. But there's a time and a place for everything, including serving the guests that God sets before you. See, Martha's mistake, you want to know what it was? Here's what it was. This is uh, Instagram worthy here, right here. Her mistake was this. Martha let the guests in her home keep her from being the guests, a guest at Jesus' feet. That's the mistake that she ultimately made. She let the guests in her home keep her from being a guest at the feet of Jesus. I said earlier, what would you give to have Jesus in your living room for one hour? All of us think, well, gosh, I would give my, I'd give my right arm, my right leg. I'd do anything for that. I would never do what Martha did. Oh, really? Oh, really? You see, Martha was worried and concerned about a good thing at the wrong time. And that's so easy to do. We can be worried about a good thing at a wrong time. And as a result, she let lesser priorities crowd out kingdom priorities. And when you do that, there are consequences. There are always consequences when you let lesser good things crowd out better eternal things. In this case, one of the consequences was her blood began to boil. And by the way, in my own life, I can generally tell you when I'm letting lesser good things crowd out better eternal things, and you want, to know the, you want to know how I know when I'm doing that? I snap at my family. I snap at my wife. I snap at my kids, which is exactly what we see happening in our passage today. Mary wasn't chastised by some random stranger. It came from within, from her own sister. And folks, that's important, and here's why. Because it will often be those that are closest to us who will be the most upset with us when we prioritize the things of God. Did you hear that? It will often be those that are closest to us that are most upset with us when we prioritize the things of God. 
Now, I grew up in a Christian family where prioritizing the things of God came with almost no consequences. There was no consequences. My parents loved it. My, my mom wanted it. I encouraged us and prayed for that. And it was, you know, that was great. But many of you didn't, didn't have that privilege that I had. And you grew up in families where when you made God a priority, you paid a price for it. And God bless you for that. You keep fighting the good fight. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because you can relate to Mary because you did what she did and you paid a price for it. You see, your family members, they will become confrontational with you when you say God first. I'm going to keep God in my crosshairs. I'm going to seek his kingdom first. I'm going to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm not going to lose sight. I'm not going to get distracted. And you're going to make people mad when you do this. And if it's not family members, it'll be others. These people want you to be focused on the urgent and the trivial, not the eternal. They want you worried and concerned about the things of this world because that's what they're worried and concerned about. And it bugs them that you're worried and concerned about other things. You should be worried about this. Come and do this. And you're saying, no, 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 no. No, no, no. I may be the only one standing over here focused on what is right, but I'm going to stand over here even if I stand alone. And that's precisely, folks, why we must never forget this lesson. When we let lesser good things crowd out better eternal things, that's when it becomes a really bad thing. Now, this brings us to Mary. Let's switch over to Mary for just a second. Mary did what is so hard to do, and that is she kept an eternal mindset. She had an eternal mindset, even in the midst of something as pressure-packed as having a bunch of people into your home. Um, let me ask you a question. If I said to you right now, hey, everybody in the service is coming to your house afterward for a surprise barbecue. Can we all come over? And you, it, it, we have to. It's your house or no house. We're coming over. What would you do? You'd be, you'd, you'd go, we all would, right? We all would. Well, and by the way, the Bible says, the passage says that Martha is the one that invited Jesus into the home. So we don't know if Mary was caught off guard, didn't know that this was going to happen. Even if she was caught off guard, she played her cards right. She had an eternal mindset. And I love how Jesus describes what she did. He says this, Mary has chosen the good portion and that will not be taken away from her. Now, you want to know what's so interesting about the good portion is that generally speaking, people are great at choosing the good portion. And I can prove it to you. If I'm building a home, I want the best lot. If I'm ordering a steak, I want the best cut. Filet, right? Medium rare. Anybody with me on the medium rare? How many of you like it well done? My wife likes it well done, and I can never eat the steak she orders. Still getting counseling for that. If I'm building a home, I want the best lot. If I'm ordering a steak, I want the best cut. If I'm going to a movie, I want the best seat. If I'm going to a church, I want the best church. Shameless plug, yes. Listen, choosing the good portion is such a natural skill that, you, that children are good at it. You don't have to teach a child to choose the best portion. If, a, if you put a pieces of cake out, they're going to want the biggest, best cake with the most flowers on it. That's what they're going to do. Even children know how to choose the good portion. What is not totally natural, listen very carefully, what is not totally natural, however, is being adept at choosing the good portion when it comes to spiritual, eternal matters. That is a skill that requires incredible discipline and maturity and wisdom. And listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. That is a skill I believe many like to think they have and are in possession of, but in reality is a skill that probably remains incredibly underdeveloped in most Christians. And the reason I say that is because I think of myself. I think of myself, folks. I am stunned. I am amazed 
at how often I like to think that I'm locked in on what truly matters only to find myself at the end of the day worried about all the wrong things yet again, just like Tuesday, just like Wednesday, just like Thursday, just like Friday. It's like, how many times do I have to be worried about the wrong thing before I get the, before I learn the lesson? And I'll go to bed putting my head on my pillow at night, worried and stressed about things that are never going to come to pass. And then a lot of things, it, it's just all the wrong things. It's incredible. I've been a Christian for 36, seven years. Of 1987, I got saved. I've been a Christian that long. I've been to seminary. I've been in the ministry for 25 years full time. You would think that this is a lesson that I'd have down pat. I don't. I really don't. And that's why I'm burdened by this because guys, I don't want to get to the end of my life having spent my life worried about all the trivial wrong things or lesser things, letting good lesser things crowd out better eternal things. I just don't want to fall into that camp. The days are too precious. They're too short. The opportunities are so rare that when they present themselves, I want to get it right. Amen? And I know you do too. Now, not surprisingly, let's get off of me for a second. I'll stop confessing. The Bible is full of examples of people letting lesser priorities override kingdom priorities while missing what truly matters. But there is perhaps one example in the Bible that is the most tragic of all, in my opinion. And I want to read that to you right now. So church, again, I want to take you to the Word of God. It's my honor to present to you the Word of God, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Hear the Word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And I love this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You still lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. And this is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Disheartened by this saying, this rich man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Amen. Again, church, I present to you the word today. So unlike Martha, who was so busy with being a hostess that she missed sitting at the feet of Jesus, this rich man in this story, he runs to Jesus and kneels at his feet, desperate to ask him a question and desperate to hear from him. So at first glance, you go, well, is this guy Martha or is he Mary? At first glance, he looks like Mary. He looks more like Mary, not Martha. He looks to be of the same mold of Mary. But it's, it looks like he knows how to choose the good version. As a matter of fact, he seems to be, and at initial glance, the male version of Mary. He runs to Jesus, kneels at his feet, asks him a question, desperate to hear. That sounds like Mary. But as we're going to see, he seems to be of the same mold as Martha. Because it's what happens next that teaches us so much about the dangers of letting lesser priorities override kingdom priorities. This man's number one priority, his true concern, was his money. And Jesus knows this and calls him on it. So like Martha who was presented with the opportunity of a lifetime to sit at the feet of Jesus in her own home, the Son of God sitting on her sofa, the living one in her living room. This rich man is given the opportunity of a lifetime. He has God, the Son of God, standing before him, bidding him, come and follow me. Come. You're invited. Come and follow me right now. 
But just like Martha, this rich man lets lesser priorities override kingdom priorities. Is it wrong to to have money and to, to care for it and manage it well? Of course not. It's a good thing. We want to be good stewards of our finances. But we never want to let a lesser priority override a kingdom priority. In this case, that's exactly what happened. By the way, we can cast stones at this guy and go, man, why did he do it? We can cast stones at Martha and go, man, what, she blew it, and this guy blew it. But it's a trap that anyone can fall into. Let me prove it to you. This was a trap that the early church was falling into. Paul says this about the early church, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I could cast stones at this generation and go, how could you walk away from the faith because of money? But point your finger and what? Three point back. Point your finger and three are always pointing right back at you. Always pointing right back at me. You see, folks, it's accounts. It's accounts like, it's accounts like the rich man with Jesus or warnings like Paul says in this passage that should ring especially loud in your ears and mind. And you want to know why? Here's why. Because you and I live in the land of plenty. We live in the land of plenty, surrounded by endless luxury, and a culture with all the wrong priorities. So if ever there were a generation of believers who are in danger of being worried about all the wrong things while, while missing what is truly important, it's you and me. This is a message, folks, that rings, should ring in our ears loud and clear. It's a message that we, it's a lesson we want to learn and we want to hold on to dearly. Now, not to mention, we live in the land of plenty, surrounded by endless luxury and a culture with all the wrong priorities. Not to mention that we also live in the land of 24-hour news, nonstop sports, endless entertainment, around-the-clock politics. This is the world that you and I live in. By the way, I said it before and I'll say it again. I said it in the earlier services. I think we are one of the most unique generations ever in the history of the world. I mean it. This generation. Why? Because we are living in the day and age of planes, trains, automobiles, mass transportation. We have um, electricity and computers and the internet. I mean, other generations did not have what we have. But with everything we have comes pressure, right? It's intense, the world that you and I live in. It's intense. It's not easy. There's something romantic about the simplicity of previous generations of not having electricity and getting around on a horse. And I mean, there's something about that that goes, wow, there's something so simplistic and appealing about that. Yes, there is. But guess what? God didn't set our feet in that generation. He put you and me here in one of the, I would argue, most difficult generations, most pressure-packed generations where there are planes, trains, and automobiles, where we are inundated with information 24 hours a day, where distractions abound, where we live in the land of plenty, surrounded by endless luxury, in a culture with all the wrong priorities. Whose feet did he set in that generation? Yours and mine. I mean it. I think this is a unique generation. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Many of us, when we get to heaven, we're going to go, I can't wait to talk to the Apostle Paul or Peter or David or Esther or whoever you want to talk to when you get to heaven. I have no doubt they're going to want to come talk to us. And they're going to go, what was it like to live in that generation where you could get on it? I mean, could you imagine, do you understand that flying, which we take for, for granted, just the fact that there's planes in the sky, this didn't exist 150 years ago. It was once thought that heavier than air flying machines were impossible. Anything heavier than air couldn't fly. This is what previous generations thought up to right to the right brothers. 
And with these, all these technologies comes many blessings, but comes immense pressure. And one of the great pressures is to stay focused in the midst of all of this. And folks, we are either going to be a generation that gets it right or we are not. We are going to be Marys or we are going to be Marthas in this generation. But I'm going to tell you what this generation needs. This generation, your family, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, and this country and the people in this world need the church to be focused on what matters. Because if we're not, who's going to do it? Washington? The politicians? No thanks. They have proven they can't do it. It's one crazy law after another that's being passed. That's why we've got to, we're going to address what we're going to address next week because they're passing laws in Canada that are making it illegal to do Christian things. And by the way, we're not far behind. This country is not far behind. You can see I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about this. Listen, as we enter 2022, you guys, let's do it as believers who are focused on all the right things. Let's be believers who, like Mary, listen very carefully, have the eyes to see and the courage to act regarding things that truly matter. It's one thing to see what truly matters. It takes courage to act upon it. It does. For some of us in 2022, we're going to be presented with kingdom opportunities, but to make that choice and to do it is going to come at a price to you. There are people that are going to hate you, cut you off, cut you out of their lives. They're going to be angry, upset with you. You're going to have Marthas in your life that are going to attack you for the decisions that you're going to make in 2022 by prioritizing the things of God and staying focused as you should. You do it. You walk that walk. You fight the good fight. Pay that price. Amen? And folks, we need to do it as a church. Church, entire church denominations are falling by the wayside. Why? We need, what this world needs is a church that is radically focused on what matters. Folks, if we do not call this culture to the greater things, to the eternal things, to the kingdom things, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it in your family? Who's going to do it with your friends? Who's going to do it with your coworkers? Who's going to do it in your sphere of influence? If you don't do it, if I don't do it, I can guarantee you this much. 2022 will be a, a year full of many things to be worried and concerned about. I mean, just look at the last three years. You and I have been inundated with end-of-the-world scenarios and pandemics and racial issues. I mean, it's just one thing after another that you and I are being hit on. And do you think it's going to stop? It's not. It is not. And it's going to come at you from every possible direction. When you wake up in the morning and you look at your phone, it's going to be there staring at you in the face. You're going to get in the car and turn on the radio. It's going to be speaking to you. You're going to go to wherever it is you go, and people are going to be talking about it. The world is going to try to get you to do everything in its power to get you and I focused on the things of this world. Lesser good things crowding out better eternal things. It'll be an opportunity for you and I to be Mary or Martha. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. The choice belongs to this church. What will we do? Let's learn the importance of doing what Mary did. Being people who choose the good portion. And I'm talking spiritually. Anybody can choose the good portion when it comes to buying a house. Anybody can choose the good portion when it comes to picking a steak or getting a movie seat. That's easy. What impresses you and what should impress you is the man or woman of God who in the moment recognizes what's at stake and makes the right decision, chooses the good portion. Amen? Amen. I finished with this challenge. Ask God to give you eyes to see those kingdom priorities that come your way in 2022. Just as there will be many distractions that come your way in 2022, know and understand this. There are going to be those times when you have Jesus sitting in your living room, so to speak. I mean it. 
And you think, well, I'll never miss Jesus sitting in my living room. Martha did. The early church did. I do it all the time. I just mean that there's going to be kingdom opportunities that fall in your lap. And you think, well, I'll never miss those. Will you? I do it all the time. Ask God to give you eyes to see. And remember, say, God, don't just give me the eyes to see, but give me the courage to act. Help me in that moment to sit at your feet, even when my family is badgering me, even when I'm paying a price for making this decision. If I'm the only one making this decision, may I stand strong. May I stand here. May I stay at your feet, no matter the cost to me. Amen? Let's be those type of people this year so that when we get to the end of this year, we have no regrets. Go, we, folks, so that we get to the end of this year, and we go, oh my gosh, I spent this whole year worried and concerned about all the wrong things. What a waste. No, thanks. I don't want that to be, I don't want that to be you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. And God, as we, again, begin this year, it's in its infancy. God, we're going to have many choices presented to us, many things laid at our feet, many requests that come across our desks. And God, we're going to have to be incredibly discerning as Christians. God, help us to do just that. Help us to be Christians, God, that choose the good portion, spiritually speaking, every time. Help us to see it and help us to have the courage to act upon it, even if we're the only one doing it. God, let us be the Christians choosing the good portion. God, I know that when we choose the good portion, people are going to see it. Some people will hate us for it, but others will be drawn to it. And God, may we be that light in this generation. May we be like the apostles of the first century, calling the world to repent. A group of men who turned the Roman Empire on its head in one generation. God, if they could do it then, we can do it now. So God, make us bold as we go. We love you and we thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said with me, amen. Hey, whatever you do, do not miss next week. God bless.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Now, they understood in Nineveh, as we will see, this was a message of impending judgment. They understood that. Look down in verse 9 as the king, which we'll look at in a little bit, is sharing in his proclamation to everyone. He says, Who knows, God may turn, it was repent, and relent, and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. They understood in Jonah's proclamation, I think we have a bit of it, yet 40 days, you know, Nineveh will be destroyed, but maybe there was more to it that God was having him say, because they understood he had burning anger upon them. God was angry at the Ninevites, and they understood that. And they understood that if he didn't turn his anger, they would perish. They understood the message of impending judgment because of their sin, as we will see. Let me tell you right now, one of the greatest revivals in history came about because Jonah obediently preached God's word. 
which contained the message of impending judgment. Oh, folks, we have so many phony baloney evangelical revivals fueled by the professions of false converts who have not heard the full gospel or have heard a false one. False converts that don't recognize they stand before a holy God who will judge them for their sin, and they will perish, experiencing eternal punishment. And their only way out from that punishment is the Lord Jesus Christ who bore that punishment for them, for their sins. God's word is clear. That day will come when his judgment will come on sin and sinners. That day will come. I was told this morning about a person that's come here that passed away last night. And it's not sure whether he was saved or not. That's a sad thing. If you don't know, if people around you don't know if you are saved, I pray that he was. But that day has come for him, and if he was not saved, he has entered into judgment as of last night. There were people on that flight in Buffalo, New York, who entered into judgment at that time. God's wrath was upon them, and those who did not know Christ, the appointed day had come, and they are now in the context of awaiting that judgment. It is appointed man once to die, and then the judgment. God has not left us in the dark concerning what he plans to do to unrepentant mankind. And Jonah shared that with the Ninevites. Now in Scripture, this judgment is called the day of the Lord. It is Yahweh's day. It is the day of Yahweh. It is the day of the great I Am. It is the day of Christ, the self-existent one. It is the day when he pours out his wrath upon sin and sinners. I'm not going to go through all the passages. We looked at them when we went through Ezekiel, but I want to read one passage in Isaiah which tells us why it comes. If you want to turn with me, middle of your Bibles, Isaiah 13. We're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see why God is so angry. Oh, and when you see why God is so angry, then it makes you rejoice in why we're forgiven in Christ. When you know how awful sin is to God and you recognize what Christ has done, it gives you so much more appreciation for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with the fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. That's pretty hard language. That's language from an angry God. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark as it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. No one will get away with anything. God is a gracious God and there are many who appear to be getting away with a lot right now, but that won't happen. I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place in the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. 
The day of the Lord will come, Scripture says, when Christ comes again and brings about his judgment upon the earth. But if you die before that, then you enter into judgment, the same judgment which will befall these who fall in the day of the Lord. Obadiah 1.15, for the day of the Lord draws near in all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return to your head. Have you ever considered the intensity of God's distaste for sin and evil? No one's going to get away with anything. God hates evil. He hates the evil that is propagated by mankind. But the most amazing thing is that in this hatred and burning anger for evil, He sent His Son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life, to be the spotless Lamb, to bear the punishment for our sins, that evil in which He is so angry at. God sent Christ instead. He came first in grace. That's what we remembered when we did communion. That's why it's so serious. And he will come again, not in reference to sins, but in reference to judgment. Christ will judge. John 5.22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you believe in Christ, you have passed from death to life. But what does true faith look like? And how is repentance involved in that? The message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. They knew God's burning anger. They saw they were going to perish. What was their response? Verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. This story is so much more than a whale story or a fish story. It is about the compassion of God towards sinful mankind, the compassion of God towards sinful Jonah, the compassion of God towards a wicked people, the Ninevites. Then the people believed in God. And look what they did. And they called a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This is a big city. This is amazing. They responded to the message which God told Jonah to preach. And they believed in God singular, not gods like they had before. God singular, the God of the message which Jonah preached. They heard the word and they believed. Notice it was not an intellectual faith. Some people have an intellectual faith. The demons believe and shudder. But their faith and their genuine repentance was followed by true works. It produced works. Verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. I'm wondering, what is this fasting and sackcloth stuff? What does it mean to put on sackcloth? What does that mean? Well, first of all, we see they literally proclaimed a fast, caruso, or they called a fast, karah. Well, what's the significance of fasting and sackcloth? Well, first of all, both of these things, I believe, are evidences of sorrowful, humble repentance, as we will see. Indeed, we see fasting in Scripture as a self-denial to represent a sorrowful humility before God because of sin. And in Scripture, it is shown as an evidence at times of repentance. Joel chapter 2, verse 11 
The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who could stand? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and render your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. And I want to make it clear that it is not the external activities that bring about God's favor. Those are evidences of a changed inside. We'll see that. But what is this idea about putting on sackcloth? Well, sackcloth was a cloth made of black goat's hair. It was coarse, it was rough, it was thick, and it was obviously used for making sacks, right? Sackcloth. And in Scripture, we see it being used in two related ways when people would put on sackcloth. One, when those who were mourning over a deceased loved one, they would put on sackcloth as a visible sign of their distress. But throughout Scripture, we also see that sackcloth represented a mourning over sin and thus a repentance. And I'm going to give you some examples here as we go. First Chronicles chapter 21. You can note these down and come back. So I'm going to give you about five. First Chronicles 21:16. We have a passage in which Satan incited David to number his armies. Satan incited David to number his armies, which Satan incited David to trust in his own wisdom rather than to trust in the Lord. He incited him to do that. And God confronted him and was disciplining Israel. And at this point, David repents, and we see this idea of sackcloth. First Chronicles 21.16, Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. The sackcloth was an external evidence of an internal repentance. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled fasting in sackcloth and dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. External symbol of something going on on the inside. Daniel chapter 9, a long prayer. You can read it in your own time. It's a wonderful prayer where Daniel recognizes that they are in the 70 years discipline because of their sin. Daniel prays. Daniel 9 chapter 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. New Testament example, the Lord Jesus Christ condemning the cities who rejected him, the Lord in their midst, comparing them to other judgments. Matthew 11:21 Woe to you Corazon woe to you Bethsaida for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you they would have repented long ago in sackcloth repentance as evidence in that culture an external manifestation of sorrow that was what sackcloth was about in these cultures it was a visible sign of a humble repentance or a mourning or sorrow Now, I need to share this with you so you don't take this the wrong way. Sackcloth and fasting doesn't mean you're humble before the Lord. Throwing on a sack and walking around not eating does not mean your heart has been changed. 
It is an external action based on an internal repentance. And that's what was happening with the Ninevites, as we will see. These Ninevites, as I believe and will see, clearly repented of the preaching of Jonah, as the Lord Jesus said, and their outward actions were a symbol of that. Now, there's lots of people doing lots of things to try to bring about forgiveness. There's lots of people running around in spiritual sackcloth and ashes trying to get God to forgive them rather than having a broken heart for their sin. And it's God's word which he uses to bring about repentance. Story of the rich man and Lazarus, pretty familiar story. Luke chapter 16, and I'm not going to go through the whole story, but the rich man dies and he ends up in Hades. His body goes in the grave. He's in Hades saying, put out the fire in my tongue. And Lazarus dies and he has comforted the beggar, Lazarus the one. And the rich man says, send Lazarus to get some water to cool this flame in my tongue. And Abraham here, symbolically the father said, child, remember during your life, You received the good things, and Lazarus likewise the bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that those may not cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Folks, you're being warned right now. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the word of God. That's what Jonah preached. That's what we have here. Preach the word. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, here's the issue, repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses, the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. But the men of Nineveh, they repented. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And sackcloth and fasting was an outward, visible sign of something that had happened in their hearts as they were petitioning the Lord to stay his judgment because they recognized they had sinned. What an amazing work of God through the word of God. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah, in obedience, preaches the message of judgment on the Ninevites. They believe and are saved. An amazing salvation. So we have the people's response. Now look at the king's response. Verse 6. When the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, he arose, back in Jonah 3, from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. Notice when this timing of this happened, when the word reached the king.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.